0: This is a People First Radio podcast. When her father was sick with throat cancer, Tate Ryan Mosley headed online. At first, the self-described super Googler was looking to learn as much as she could about the medical aspects of her dad's diagnosis. Then, when it seemed like grief was on the horizon she tried to use the web to prepare herself. It led the tech reporter into a tsunami of other people's tragedy. Online algorithms on platforms like Instagram, Amazon, and Google Discover offered her example after example of cancer and loss, even when she hadn't explicitly sought them out. It took Tate Ryan Mosley months of intentional work to get her online world back to normal. And she joined me to unpack the experience,
1: my name is Tate Ryan Mosley. I'm a senior reporter of tech policy at MIT Technology Review. And I try to cover the ways that technology is changing our government, politics, and society.
0: And your beat and your real life merge maybe a little more than usual. Could you tell me, was there maybe a, a moment you first realized? the internet was feeding you grief that you didn't want?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And it happened kind of slowly. So in my story, I write about how at first when I was dealing with my dad's cancer diagnosis and then um, his when it came back, I was using the internet really as a resource for understanding the medical diagnosis and also Understanding how to manage my own stress. At the time, I was working full time. I was also in graduate school. I moved home to help take care of my family. My other sisters were equally involved and also so busy. And I was, you know, there are so many tools about mental health, stress management, you know, even sometimes you just need inspiration. And so I was going to the internet kind of for all of it. And it wasn't until, you know, late one night i realized i was up until like 3 or 4 in the morning going down these rabbit holes of tragedy and it had kind of turned from you know me going you know on instagram or even on google to or or through books i was reading books about people kind of conquering really hard things it kind of in a attempt to learn to be understood to maybe watch someone else go through it and i realized i was up i was i think it was like 3 in the morning reading about Princess Diana dying and just sobbing and it, it wasn't healthy. I was like, how, why am I adding on to the trauma and grief that I'm going through by just consuming these stories in a way that at that time for me wasn't healthy, wasn't serving me?
0: So when this was happening, you mentioned there was a moment where you clock in and you're like, whoa, it's 3 a.m. What am I doing here? But for the most part, like how difficult was it to kind of catch yourself Doing this?
1: So difficult because I think, in that, you know, I have never been in a situation quite like that before where your kind of current life and personal life are so overwhelming. And, you know, what I tell people is I think what I experienced was, and my dad's diagnosis was severe enough where it really felt like some of the fundamental building blocks of my life were shifting. And it destabilized everything that was on top of it because it was a new experience for me. The things that I was seeking, whether that is, you know, identifying with somebody else who was struggling or, or grasping for information, grasping for tools. It was really confusing to me as to when resources turned toxic and when, you know, This longing for being understood or longing for learning turned into just living out somebody else's tragedy in a more painful way because I felt like I was on the brink of it, you know? So I don't think I had much clarity. And even once I kind of realized I had been going down rabbit holes in a way that was maybe unhealthy, I was kind of attached to it almost. I think there was something cathartic unfortunately, I wanted to taste what grief was going to feel like. That's how I felt. I felt like I was about to step into this really vast space of grief and I wanted to touch it. I wanted to know what it was going to be like prematurely. And ultimately that wasn't healthy, but it was hard for me to know that in the moment.
0: Did you get a sense of So the why you started doing this, you have a good sense of, you know, you were experiencing this, your dad's cancer diagnosis. You were maybe trying to prepare yourself for grief in a way. But in terms of the machinations of the internet, did you get a sense of why this started to become something that was coming at you constantly all the time?
1: Yeah, totally. I think for me, and I say this in the the piece, the most obvious place that I experienced it was on a particular page of Google's mobile app called Discover and it's under the search bar where it feeds personalized content that you might be interested in and Google in particular because I was googling so many medical terms and probably googling the most like mental health resources information that way really quickly the the content got weird it would be you know news stories about car accidents or medical stories about grief. And it became so clear to me that it had picked up on a behavior of mine that was abnormal. You know, whereas on Instagram, you know, sometimes I feel like everybody has gone down kind of curious rabbit holes or curious paths of getting into a particular community. I know like one time I was for a few months, I was super into extreme trampolining. And like, that's something that feels kind of more normal or, or I don't know, it's more built into the fabric of Instagram. Whereas on Google, seeing search results come up and that are with content that was just so strange from what I normally was getting told me that the internet was like hyper personalizing what it was feeding me.
0: I think that's a really good point. I think most people realize that when we talk about the algorithm, we have this understanding or maybe this picture in our head of, you know, TikTok or Instagram videos. If I watch something about dogs, I'll see more dogs. But what you're describing there sounds more like something you might just assume is like neutral. I'm searching something into Google. You know, anyone searching the thing into Google will get the same results, right? But that's not the case these days.
1: Yeah. And that particular product that they have is designed differently than like the search results that they filtered to people. So that page is meant to be hyper personalized and based off of, and you give consent to it. So I had personalization turned on. It wasn't that I would, you know, type in cancer, and it would show me unique results for cancer. What it was, was just when I would open up Google, all of the news that was, you know, being shown to me was strange and personalized based off of my previous searching. So yeah, it was it was a very weird reflection of personalization, right? It's almost like sometimes the internet holds up a mirror to you of look at what we think you're interested in. And at because it was Google, a Google product, I was like, oh, The reflection in that mirror is strange. I had an awareness of my own behavior because of it.
0: You're listening to People First Radio. My guest is Tate Ryan Mosley. She's a senior reporter for MIT Tech Review. Last year, after her dad's throat cancer returned, Ryan Mosley found herself reading more and more stories of tragedy and loss online. That created a feedback loop with platforms like Instagram and Google Discover showing her more grief-related content, even when she didn't want to see it. We're talking about that situation and what it was like trying to get out of it. Were you ultimately able to make it out of that web of grief, I'll call it?
1: Yeah, you know, I tried really hard, and and it was a combination of technical solutions and just moving on with my life. I mean, I because I'm a tech reporter, I think know more about how these systems are designed than the average internet user. And it was really challenging for me to figure out how to navigate it. So it makes me feel like it's got to be very, very challenging for somebody who doesn't report on this full-time 24-7 to understand you know the way that information is fed to them. And so I, right away, I mean, I remember the day after I realized I was a reading and crying about princess diana i turned i deleted instagram from my phone i turned off my google search page i set an a, lim, a limit on my phone for the a time limit for just searching and those things really helped it was kind of a you know an aggressive intervention right away to just get me out of the space to just have me stop seeing everything and then i probably Kept up with that for like a month of just really trying to detox from the internet. And I could because I had taken a leave from work at the time. And then I slowly you know, needed the internet again. And when I went back to work and my dad started to get better and I went back online, I tried to use some of the user tools that are out there to m- more customize my online experience. And I did some research about how to do that, which I, which was part of the reason I wrote the piece, was I was learning things for my own use that about tools that people have in order to customize and make their own online experiences safer uh, for them.
0: Reading your reflections on this, you wrote that you were perhaps a victim of something that's being called the
1: internet's original sin. Can you tell me a bit about that idea? The internet's original sin is a idea put forth by Ethan Zuckerman, who's an academic who does a lot of writing on this space that focuses on like the advertising economy that underpins the value of online media. So you, a lot of people have heard about the attention economy and basically these incentives that are set up to provide vast amounts of information to internet companies and tech companies and spend a lot of time using the internet and clicking on content so that companies can collect even more data about you and your habits to, in turn, sell that data to advertisers and use that data to make products that are even more addictive and personalized to people. And there's another term for it, surveillance capitalism, which is this idea that's really closely related, which is just that the kind of economic incentives that drive the model of the internet are inherently set up to commercialize and disempower users. And the idea is what they sell is personalization. And it's, you know, it's hard because personalization in some ways makes the internet really great. It gives us a lot of what we want. There's a lot of information out there in the world, and personalization helps order that information and highlight information that is most value, might be most valued to people. But the dark side of it is that you're handing over a lot of information about yourself and data about yourself that quickly gets out of your control.
0: So you're a tech reporter, you can't just turn the internet off and stop using it and walk away from this. What are your reflections for the the millions and millions and millions of people out there who are, you know, the user and how they can navigate these systems that maybe sometimes the deck is is stacked against them.
1: Yeah, I think the number one thing is awareness about your own habits and reflection about your own habits. I think that's the most practical advice that I have for people. I think, of course, looking at more systemic, more meaningful changes to the economy of the internet and to the policies that certain websites have about how they personalize and what type of content they personalize on and building tools that give users more control of their online environments are all really, really good things that people should push for all the time. But I also think that in reality, the number one thing that people can do now is have a, to the extent that they're able, a healthy relationship with themselves and their media consumption habits. And this has been true forever. But I think with the internet, it's particularly extreme. And I think when, especially with kids and people who are growing up online, having the, I would say, mental health awareness, language, articulation skills to talk about the effect of consuming media online is just the most important immediate thing that people can do.
0: This is People First Radio. If you're just tuning in, I'm chatting with Tate Ryan Mosley. She's a senior reporter with MIT Tech Review. When her dad's throat cancer returned, she started Googling grief, which led her down an online algorithm-fueled rabbit hole. One day, she was up at 3 a.m. sobbing while reading about Princess Diana's death and realized this wasn't healthy. So ultimately... This journey for you started because you were grieving and you wanted to explore grief. How did your reflections on grief change as a result of it?
1: Well, that's a really good question. I I think in the most simplest terms, I underestimated how destabilizing it is, which speaks to my privilege of not having to grieve a parent or a child or a spouse thus far in my life i think touching that level of personal grief gave me a new sense of understanding certainly not a whole sense of understanding but a little bit more of an understanding of what a lot of people deal with on a day-to-day basis and i think it also taught me about how important mental health is in managing situations of crisis. I think oftentimes when a situation of crisis occurs, you're dealing with so much stuff that mental health just falls to the bottom of the list. And really that's the time that I think for me, it was the most important to make it my number one priority because I couldn't do any of the other stuff if I was really drowning and mental health issues. So I think that was, you know, a lesson that I will carry with me again when I have another time in my life when things get hard and I go through, you know, similar situations, just prioritizing my mental health first so that I can do all the stuff that I wanna do to support other people during those situations is gonna be the most important thing.
0: Is there anything else you'd like to bring to the conversation today?
1: Yeah, one thing, one point I really didn't make, and I probably should have, is one thing as a reporter that I'm really interested in in this space is that a lot of tech companies, including Google, have policies that are meant to not personalize recommendation algorithms on particular topics or information or words, what have you. And it's important to know that while those policies are good, and there should always be, you know, good safety policies, they don't always work. They're not always tenable, and it's a work in progress. Right? This is a new challenge for us as people to manage this amount of information online and user-generated content. And from a policy perspective, we're just starting to engage in these conversations as a whole of society. You know, it's been a pretty siloed conversation among technologists for a long time. And I think increasingly, it's part of public consciousness, and that's great. But I think it's really important to just call out that this is a conversation about, you know, the policy conversation and understanding what tech companies are promising they can do is something that people need to be involved in and held accountable for. So that's reporting that I increasingly hope to do. But I think it would be great to have like more public understanding that just because, you know, a company says they're not doing something doesn't mean it's true.
0: Tate Ryan Mosley, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with
1: me. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Tate Ryan Mosley is a senior reporter for MIT Tech Review. She wrote about the story we were discussing in an article called When My Dad Was Sick, I Started Googling Grief, Then I Couldn't Escape It. You can find that article on MIT Tech Review. Ryan Mosley also mentioned to me that her dad is doing well all things considered and just got back from a trip to Alaska.
1: People First Radio, People First Media, and People First Stories are community media projects of Vancouver Island Mental Health Society and are produced in Nanaimo, British Columbia. The opinions expressed do not necessarily represent the views of Vancouver Island Mental Health Society or its broadcast, podcast, and social media partners.